Good to be with you this morning. We have a wonderful passage to consider together from God's word. So as we do that, let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, for all who are in Christ Jesus, uh, who've gathered together here today, we are free. And you have redeemed us by the blood of your Son. And for that, we're grateful. And yet our hearts wander. The world beckons us to consider things that are apart from you or opposed to you. And we need constant reminders of the good news of your gospel. And we need constant reminders of your mercy and your grace and your love. And so as we open Jonah chapter 2 together this morning, God, we ask for your work to be clear in our lives. I pray for soft hearts and that the work of your spirit would uh, be palpable in this place as we gather together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, somewhere toward the start of my sophomore year in college, I reach a low point. And really, to call it a low point doesn't do justice to how I felt. And even as I look back three decades later, I think it's safe to say that it was the lowest I've ever been in my entire life. Nothing in my life was going the way that I wanted to. I was very self-focused. And a good description of how I felt would be utter despair. I was a newer Christian, and I lacked knowledge of the scriptures. I lacked godly wisdom, and I lacked the theological categories to make sense of what I was experiencing, which was conflict between God's vision for my life and my own selfish vision. And it was awful. I was miserable. I felt hopeless and helpless and trapped. So one afternoon, I left my apartment in Williamsburg, and I started walking. I had no idea where I was going. I had no idea what I was doing, but I was done. And I felt like running away from life. So I did. Well, sort of. I actually just walked. And I walked for miles. I walked all the way from my apartment in Williamsburg to Jamestown. And then I turned and I just kept walking. Eventually, it started to get dark. I had no idea where I was or how I would get home. This was before we had handheld GPS. <laughs> but I had walked for so long that I knew now I couldn't turn around and retrace my steps. This was an ill-conceived escape. And somehow, by God's grace, I ended up back in familiar territory and managed to find my way back home. That afternoon, I walked 14 miles. Nothing obvious happened. There was no appearance from God. There was no voice from heaven. And when I finally returned to my apartment, I was the same miserable person that I had been when I'd left earlier that day. None of my roommates even noticed that I was gone. <laughs> but that long and lonely walk, strange as it was, marked the start of a three-year process of crying out to God for mercy, a cry that he graciously answered in abundance. And had he not, I wouldn't be standing here before you today. Of that, I'm convinced. And I imagine many of us, if not most, can relate to the feeling of utter despair, of deep despair. And the circumstances that can produce such desperation are as diverse as the people in this room. Maybe it was even hard for you to get out of bed today, to come here this morning. You're drowning in the depths and you know it, but you're here and we're glad. I suspect others are in the pit and you don't know it. Everything is fine. But there's a distance between you and God. You don't have a close relationship with him. 
And if the circumstances of your life were to turn for the worse, you'd be ill-prepared to handle it, just like I was all those years ago. All of us are likely to encounter desperate circumstances at one point or another, and we'll also face opportunities to encourage others who are in the depths. What do we say to someone who is in despair? What do we do when we're in despair? Personally, I don't recommend a 14-mile walk. Thankfully, the Bible speaks regularly to deep despair. And in the portion of Scripture that we're going to consider together today, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, all the way through 2.10, we encounter a desperate, disobedient prophet who is knocking on death's door. He's despairing of life. He's distanced from God, and he needs his merciful intervention. And what we find in this powerful passage, most of it a prayer offered by Jonah himself, is that no matter how deep our despair might be, the mercy of God is deeper still. No matter how significant our sin is, the grace of God is sufficient to cover it. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. And every single one of us needs his love and mercy today and every day. So let's turn to Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and, and hear God's word to us. There are three movements in this passage. We find an obedient fish who swallows this disobedient prophet. We see the deep despair of Jonah, and we see the deeper mercy of God. So look with me in your Bibles, Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, as we encounter an obedient fish. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now before we move too quickly to the fish, I want us to stop for a moment and get a sense of Jonah's situation. We're quick to just see him getting snatched up by the fish that we sometimes miss what must have happened in between when he got thrown overboard and when the fish came. He's somewhere in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, having been tossed overboard by his fellow travelers, albeit at his own request. And we have no idea whether or not he can swim, likely not. And I'm a good swimmer, but this picture that's here, this setting, makes me positively panicked. There's something wild and terrifying about the open ocean, isn't there? You can't see what's lurking below the surface. And you can't really swim to shore if you can see the shore at all, if you can swim at all. And this is why stories of surviving the ocean capture our attention. Stories of real-life people like Louis Zamperini in Unbroken or Tom Hanks' character in Castaway. But Jonah has no raft. Without a miracle, he's sure to drown. And to the ancient Israelites who first read this book, the sea represented the chaos of creation. It was a picture of God's judgment and wrath for all the reasons we've already mentioned. And this is why the stilling of the sea when the sailors throw Jonah in is such a powerful picture of God's propitiation. And whether the sea is still or not, Jonah needs help as he slips into the depths. And God provides a very odd lifeline. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now thus far in the account, the Lord has hurled a mighty wind on the sea. He has sovereignly placed the lot on Jonah, and here he appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. Later in the narrative, we're going to see how the Lord appoints a plant, and he appoints a worm, and he appoints a scorching east wind to get Jonah's attention. And they all do exactly what the Lord commands. 
But the first command that the Lord gives in this book is all the way back in chapter 1, verse 1, when his word comes to Jonah saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. All of nature obeys God's command, which only serves to contrast the prophet's disobedience. But it also reminds us that God has created humans in his image with a will. We can either humbly yield to him or we can hard-heartedly resist him. And this is what makes our relationship with God and all of creation so unique. Now, I suppose if I were to come home each day and physically manipulate my children's arms around me, that would satisfy the technical definition of a hug. But it wouldn't feel very good. But, oh, it's the best when I walk in that door and I hear them yell, Daddy, and they come running and they wrap their arms around me and squeeze me with all of their might because they want to, because they love me. Now, Jonah's not even feigning a hug for God as he runs in the opposite direction. And so we find our disobedient prophet swallowed by an obedient fish, a great fish. This is just a general word, not a technical one, which is why this fish is most often depicted as a whale. But before we read on, we need to answer this question. Could this really happen? Could a man really survive for three days and three nights in the belly of a whale or a fish? Now, suggestions that this is a true story provide ample opportunity for mocking. I have two degrees in biology, and I've been intrigued how a man could survive for three days and three nights in the stomach of a whale. I've heard the story of a man in the 19th century who was found alive but unconscious in the stomach of a sperm whale. I've also heard that story getting debunked and dismissed as a weak attempt to make a case for Jonah. And while it's tempting to search for natural explanations for what happens in this verse, I want to tell you where I land. The God I know spoke the heavens and the earth into existence out of nothing. He gave a son to Abraham and Sarah when they were decades past childbearing age. He freed his people from slavery in Egypt with ten miraculous plagues and a path through the Red Sea. My God fed his people for 40 years with manna from heaven. He brought down Jericho's walls with the blast of a horn. He defeated the prophets of Baal with fire from heaven. He protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the flames of a furnace. He preserved Daniel in a den of lions. Do you know this God, the one true God? In time, God sent his son Jesus, who was born miraculously to a virgin. He was fully God and fully man, and he lived without sin. He healed countless people. He helped blind men see, lame men walk, and dead people live. He walked on water. He multiplied fish and bread to feed thousands. He was transfigured brilliantly on the top of a mountain. And all of our Christian faith hinges on the fact that he bore our sin on a cross thousands of years before we had even committed it. And then he died and he was placed in a borrowed tomb. And then three days later, the stone that covered that tomb was rolled away and Jesus rose from the grave and he appeared to hundreds before he ascended into the clouds to return to heaven where he currently sits at the Father's right hand. That's my God. Is yours? Because if we have a problem with a fish or a whale swallowing a man, what on earth do we do with Jesus, the risen Messiah who, might I add, spoke of Jonah as a real person who spent three days and three nights in a fish? We serve a God of miracles. And it might not satisfy skeptics, but what if God used supernatural means to save Jonah and to get his attention because he loved him in the belly of this great fish? 
God can do whatever he wants. Regardless of whether God used natural means or supernatural means, God's word says it happened, and I believe it. And from that fish, Jonah prays. And as he does, he shares his deep despair with God. Chapter 2, verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you and to your holy temple. Now we should start just by recognizing that Jonah prays. Jonah is praying. He doesn't pray when God calls him to Nineveh. You know, like we all do when we make a decision, we need to pray and ask the Lord whether or not we should do this. Well, he's saying, go. He doesn't even pray in the storm when the ship's captain tells him to call out to his God. But now Jonah finds himself in this desperate circumstance, and he finally prays. And there are a couple themes that emerge in his prayer that I'd like for us to consider together rather than going through this verse by verse, because he says a lot here. The first is the up-down language of his prayer. It's not even limited to his prayer. The author of Jonah uses it purposely throughout the entire book but it sometimes gets lost in translation from Hebrew to English. In Jonah chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord says, Arise, or get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And what does Jonah do? Instead of going, getting up and going east, he goes down and west, down to Joppa, down into the inner part of the ship, where he lays down. And just when you thought he couldn't get any further down... He gets thrown overboard into the sea. Verse 2, he's not just in the belly of this fish, he's in the belly of Sheol. To ancient Israelites, Sheol was simply the place of the dead. Verse 3, he's in the deep, into the heart of the seas. He's drowning in this flood. He's under the billowing waves. He's surrounded by the deep. He's entangled by weeds. Verse 6, Jonah is at the root of the mountains, that is, at the bottom of the sea, down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's in the pit, and he's knocking on death's door. Now, in contrast, the Lord is up, up in his holy temple. Ancient Israelites viewed the Lord's temple in the heavens as the highest point of creation, and Sheol as the lowest point. And this up-down language here in Jonah's prayer and throughout the book is meant to convey the prophet's relational distance from God. Even though God is everywhere, he's in all places, jo Jonah has disobeyed him. And he's tried in vain to flee from the Lord's presence, and now he's reaping the consequences of this distance. He's distressed. He's in despair. He's as good as dead. And though we might prefer to distance ourselves from Jonah, this stark contrast between God and Jonah is meant to convey a relational existence that represents our stature before our God apart from Christ. 
God created us to, to live in perfect communion with him, but our sin separates us. And the wages of our sin is death. And if we have no awareness that our sin separates us from God, then we have no need for a Savior. Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, verse 31, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what the up-down language portrays, the physical distance between Jonah and God as a picture of the relational distance caused by his sinful disobedience. So we see this up-down language. There's another theme that emerges from Jonah's prayer, and it's actually a good one. It's his reliance on Scripture. Despite the prophet's disobedience, he clearly knows the Word of God. Now, we lack the time to walk through each one, but in Jonah's prayer, there are strong allusions and even quotations of Psalms 3, 5, 16, 18, 30, 31, 42, 50, 65, 88, and, and 120. It's clear that Jonah knew his Bible because of what comes out of him in his desperation. It's Scripture. And the Psalms in particular provide a broad perspective on the relationship between God and man, on the nature of life and death, and on the range of human emotion from deep despair to hope-filled joy. And while it's important for us to obey God's word and not just memorize it, Jonah knows what's right and true because of his time in the word. I'm convinced of that. And I love what author Jen Wilkin has to say about reading the Bible. She highlights the temptation to treat Bible reading like a daily transaction, almost like an ATM withdrawal that offers us instant meaning or instant feeling or instant knowledge. Instead, she encourages a savings account perspective where we make daily deposits over weeks and months and years, investing ourselves in God's word without expecting perhaps an immediate return. This is what she writes. She says, if you've ever walked through the valley of trial, you know what it is like to find years of faithful deposits bearing dividends. A patient long-term approach is key. The book of Ezekiel may not fix your day, but it may just sustain you in a lengthy trial if you give it your quiet times. The formational profit of spending time in the Word is more likely to emerge over 15 years than 15 minutes. Time in the Word is meant to be not merely informational or inspirational, but relational. It trains us to listen to the voice of God in His Word, and it teaches us who He is. It is God inviting us into conversation for the purpose of relationship. I love what she has to say there. In the despair of a fish's belly, we see Jonah's unmistakable, long-standing commitment to God's word bearing fruit in a time of need. And we see him returning to his relationship with God, even if there's distance. Despite his disobedience, we should see value in Jonah's reliance on the scriptures, on the Psalms. Do you have a savings account approach or an ATM account approach to the Bible? And in your moments of despair, what will mark your prayers? There's a third and final theme I want to highlight in Jonah's prayer, and that's his focus on the Lord. We see his focus first and foremost on the Lord's sovereignty, operating behind the scenes. Remember, it was the sailors who hurled Jonah into the sea, but look what he says in verse 3. For you, speaking to God, for you cast me into the deep. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Verse 4, then I said, I am driven away from your sight. That's passive. He's acknowledging that God is the one driving. 
He's at work in his circumstances here, even though Jonah is the one who's been disobeying, running away, and hiding. How do we make sense of this? Well, I find John Piper's work on God's providence very helpful here in his wonderful book, I could call it a tome, uh, called Providence, which I highly recommend, incredibly helpful. Piper asked the question, what does the Bible teach about God's providence over the sinful human will? It teaches that God, in his infinite wisdom and goodness and holiness and justice, knows how to govern good and evil choices of all humans without himself sinning and without turning human preferences and choices into morally irrelevant robot-like actions. You see, God is sovereign and we are responsible for what we do. It's both. It's not either or. And when I think back to the circumstances of my life that led me to despair in the fall of 1994, I recognize now that God was at work in all of them, not just some of them, all of them. There was nothing that I was experiencing, whether it was from my hands or others, that did not fall under God's kind providence. And what we can never understand fully is God's ultimate purposes. I can see now, at least in part, what God was doing in me and for me and even through me. He was disciplining me. He was drawing me closer to himself, and he was encouraging deeper reliance on him and his word. And while I did not appreciate the pain of those years, I'm eternally grateful for the fruit that God produced as a result. As sinners and sufferers, the providence of God in all things, even in our deepest pain, should give us tremendous comfort. But that's not the only thing that Jonah focuses on about the Lord. Uh, When we see the Lord's care in Jonah's prayer as he focuses on the Lord's attention to Jonah's plight, the Lord sees him and he acknowledges that. Verse 2, the Lord answered me and speaking to God, you heard my voice. Verse 6, you brought up my life from the pit. He wisely sees his current residence in the belly of this fish as an improvement over drowning. Verse 7, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. And now Jonah finally sees the truth of Psalm 139. This is what what Psalm 139 tells us or asks. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Jonah knows this now. He knows it. The Lord is near. The Lord sees. The Lord hears. The Lord knows. The Lord cares. And as we now see in the third and final movement of this passage, the Lord also delivers in accordance with his steadfast loving kindness, his abundant mercy. And as deep as Jonah's despair may be, the Lord's mercy is deeper still. And Jonah concludes his prayer with this emphasis starting in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So what finally clicks for Jonah in this fish, in this prayer? What what causes the change? Well, it seems that he finally recognizes this relational distance from the Lord, his need to be lifted up, his need to be saved. His near-death experience has helped him to recognize his need to repent and to change course. 
And as he thinks of the temple, that place of God's special presence and favor, the place where faithful Israelites offered sacrifices to God, the place where God's blood-sprinkled mercy seat resided, and as he thinks of himself offering those sacrifices, he remembers the steadfast love of the Lord, his hesed, his covenantal love, his gracious mercy toward his people, his sinful people, and their sin. It's his only hope for salvation, and it's our only hope as well. If we only worship other gods, false gods, idols, we will not receive his mercy, only judgment. But if we cry out to him in faith, he will save us from our sin. Jonah understood that salvation is from the Lord. He recognized that he could not climb from his lowest point to heaven on his own. God would need to reach his long saving arm from heaven to show that his grace is greater than all our sin. And so he sent his son to earth to live a perfect life, to die for our sins, and to conquer the grave. Jesus would even point to Jonah's three days and three nights as a sign of his own resurrection on the third day. It was the only sign that he was willing to give to those who demanded one. And the same bloody cross and empty tomb that offer us mercy would be Jonah's only hope for mercy as well. We cannot climb out of the pit on our own. We need God to lift us. We cannot save ourselves. Only God can save. And we don't have to sink to the ocean floor to understand the chasm that separates us from God because of our sin. And while Jonah received a reprieve, a chance to correct course, a time in this fish, we might not. And if you're here today and you've not recognized the distance that your sin separates you from God, if you have not cried out to him for mercy, if you have not placed your trust in the salvation that God has made possible through his son today, I encourage you to do so even now. Jesus told the parable of Lazarus, a poor man who died and went to be comforted at Abraham's side in heaven, and a rich man who stepped over Lazarus at his gate. Went, he, he ignored God and his word, and he went to Hades, a place of torment and eternal suffering. And when the rich man cries out to mercy to Abraham in the parable from Hades, this is what Abraham says to him. Between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. By the time we die, it's too late to cry out for mercy. The chasm that exists on account of our sin becomes fixed and fixed forever. Jesus is the only one who can bridge the chasm between us as a sinful people, knocking on death's door, and our holy God in heaven. And so I beg of you today, if you have not done so, accept the mercy that he offers to all who call on his name and cry out to him today. There's a noticeable change in Jonah as he sits in the belly of that great fish. He's humbled, he's thankful. But as we'll see late in the latter half of the book, he's still, like all of us, a work in progress. He's, he's still clinging to idols. He has yet to grasp that this deep mercy of God is not just for him and his fellow Israelites, but it's for the nations. It's so funny that he runs from Nineveh, so God uses his disobedience to save pagan sailors who are sailing out of Joppa. You're going to run away from this nation? I'm going to use you to save this one. 
There's fantastic irony also in what Jonah prays here. The pagan sailors aboard his ship recognized that Jonah's God was the one true God, and they began to call out to him. And when the sea became still after they threw Jonah aboard, maybe he was there and heard, or maybe he was sinking below the surface. Chapter 1, verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. So while the content of Jonah's prayer is true, as he distanced himself from people who worship vain idols, he seems to be the last one to embrace it in action. And God will use the faith of Gentiles in Joppa, in Nineveh, to remind Jonah just how wide and how deep his mercy is. And at the conclusion of his prayer, verse 10, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It's comical that this is a mercy getting vomited up. But at least now he's up on dry land, no longer going down, not dead, but headed in the right direction, which is obedience to God's purpose and his call. We are saved by his mercy and his grace alone so that, so that we can do good works and obey his rescue mission for his glory and for his fame because he intends for all nations to represent him in heaven. Jonah knew God and he knew his word, but he was turning to false idols. And this is a temptation for us too, no matter how long we followed Christ. Tim Keller famously and helpfully defines an idol as anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And when we do chase after idols like relationships or respect or significance or status or stability, and they let us down as idols are wont to do, the result is often despair. And certainly there are many things that can cause despair. But when our despair is the result of relying on vain idols, on things that cannot bear the weight of our dependence or our devotion or our worship, God often removes them, much like a father removes training wheels from his child's bike. This is his mercy to us. He does not force his love on us, but he draws us to greater trust in him and more intimate fellowship with him. But whatever the cause of our despair might be, God is sovereign and he's at work. We can either humble ourselves and cry out to him in faith or we can turn back to our old vain idols. And our false gods, they'll chew us up and they'll spit us out. But God is always there. He's always ready to show us mercy. In the opening of his letter that we now call 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul describes God as the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Isn't that such a wonderful description? Brothers and sisters, there is no sin or idol in our hearts for which God lacks a mercy. Not one. There is no misery or despair for which he cannot supply comfort. When we're low, what more do we need than God's mercy and his comfort? Sometimes God's mercy will lead to a change in our circumstances. And sometimes God's mercy to us is not changing the circumstances, however terrible they might be. And he's no less good, and he's no less God if he does. But he's near. And according to his deep, deep mercy, he will supply the very comfort and strength you need to endure to the end. 
No matter how deep our despair might be, the mercy of God is deeper still. Now, our family makes it down to Williamsburg about once a year. And uh, every time we do, we drive over the Colonial Parkway. It was a sight of my aimless, hopeless 14-mile attempt to escape my despair decades ago. You could, you could see how painful those, those days were. And for many years, it was hard to see that road because it reminded me so powerfully of the pain of that day in fall of 1994. But now, when I drive over that road, I'm reminded of the deep, deep mercy of God. And I'm thankful that he's removed so many vain idols from my life, so many. Some with more kicking and screaming than others. And I would not be here today if it weren't for many faithful Christian friends then and even now who have gently and faithfully pointed me to the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, which includes many of you who are members of this beautiful church family. We need each other. We need community as we walk through this difficult journey together. And I'm thankful for the work that God has done, and I'm thankful for the work that he has yet to do. We're all works in progress. He has work to do in my life, and he has work to do in yours. And he intends to use each of us as trophies of his mercy and his grace to offer comfort and grace and mercy to others. And to preach the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection to a generation that's knocking on death's door without any hope. There are people who need this message in our backyard. And there are people all over the globe who need this message. People who have never heard of the one true God, the Father of mercies, and His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. No matter how deep our despair, God's not done with us. He's not done with us. So let's commit ourselves as a church family to cry out for His mercy, to thank Him for His mercy, and to be agents of his mercy and to comfort others until Christ returns or calls us home. Now toward the end of the service, we'll have a time of prayer. If you need someone to pray for you, if you need the Lord's mercy today, I want to encourage you, come to the sides to be prayed over. But now let's all pray together. God, I'm just confounded by how merciful you are when I think of myself and I think of each person in this room that the desperate need that we each have for you, a holy God. And you could have chosen not to do anything about our situation, but you're a gracious God. You're a kind God. You're a good God. You're a merciful God. It's part of your character, and so you have saved us. And for that, we give you thanks. I pray for anyone here who's in deep despair that your mercy would cover them. I pray for anyone here wrestling with whether or not to put that trust their trust in your son would do so now, even as I pray. And I pray for all of us to be agents of mercy by the strength that you supply. In Jesus' name, amen.